Well, have you ever uh, met somebody and immediately thought, I like this person. I'm going to be their friend. It's a, it's a, it's a rare occurrence. Um, I don't know, especially for a lot of guys. I, I know I'm broad brushing right now, but I think women have an easier time making friends usually. Like, women are just better at it. Um, it's why you girls will a lot of times, like, set your man up, like, to make friends. Because for whatever reason, like, girls, they love the idea of, like, couple friends, right? We're couples, but we're also friends. It's like, ah, oh, this just sounds like a lot of work to me. But any of you, uh, any of you fellas know what I'm talking about, though? You know, you like go on like maybe like a double date or something. You just thought you were going out for fun, and then you get back in the car, and your wife's like, "So, what'd you think of him?" Like, didn't know I was on a date. <laughs> like, what, what are you, what are you talking about here? But then once in a while, you do meet someone, and it just like it clicks, and, and you think, "Man, this person and I, we're gonna be good friends." That ever happened to you? What was it about them that you liked? You know, when you think about your friends, or when you think about the, the friends you'd like to have, maybe, what is it that you look for in a friend? When you find yourself really clicking with somebody, what is it about them? Because that actually says a lot about you. The average of the people you hang out with is you. Who you're drawn to says a lot about you. So to really understand who Jesus is, we also have to look at his friend. And in today's text, Jesus introduces us to his friend. He says, this is what I like about my friend. And it is so good. It is so challenging. It is so humbling. See, today we ask ourselves, do I have what Jesus looks for in his friends? This might sting a little, but we're in this together. Luke chapter 7 is where we're at. Luke chapter 7, you got uh, Bibles in the chairs, otherwise phones, tablets. Really encourage you to grab a Bible. Um, it's page 863 in the Bibles in the chairs. And then we also have notes, and uh, I'm, we're gonna actually going to project a lot more on the screen than the fill-in-the-blanks, and so I'd really encourage you to write more than just the fill-in-the-blanks, because we're going to hit a lot of content today. Um, it's going to be good stuff, though. Like, Jesus has got some golden stuff for us today. I'm excited to jump into it. Let me pray, and that's what we'll do. And God, I thank you so much for your word. I, I thank you that your word is transformational, that your word is living and active. And God, may we remember that as we open this this might be the most important time of our week as we gather together as family, as brothers and sisters in, in Christ and hear from our creator, hear from our father, our dad. And so God, may you remind us just of the, the seriousness of this as we do this together. Uh, you will speak. I ask that we listen. That we eliminate all distractions and really tune into what you have for us right now in your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we enter into... Luke chapter 7, we, we find ourselves in a dingy, musty smell that really invades our senses. It's a bit jolting. Our eyes take time to adjust to the dark stone room. Rays of sunlight stream through the cage door, providing really the only light in here. Welcome to first century prison, a dungeon. The sound of condensation drips off the blackened ceilings and, and collects in little muddy pools all over the ground. You can tell the men in here who've been in here for a while because they're, they're complete skin and bone. And there they all sit in the darkness and in the filth, waiting for freedom, either freedom through a miracle or freedom through death. And there along one of the walls sits a man He's more unkept than the others. His back leans against the cold, damp wall. His matted hair hides part of his face. 
The camel wool clothing chafes his raw skin. When he speaks, he speaks with a, a raspy gravel as if he's worn out his voice because he has. He's a local celebrity. All the fellow inmates have heard about this man sitting against this wall, John the Baptist, the great preacher, the eccentric outdoorsman, the cousin and close friend of Jesus Christ, a man who spoke with creativity and power and conviction and boldness. His voice thundered through the wilderness of Israel. Yet here he sits quietly in his thoughts. Feels like ever since the door locked, a depression has fallen over him because he's used to the wide open spaces, the sun, the nature. But he's confined to this dark, closed space until who knows when. And that sort of thing really messes with your head. And so he sits there in thought. That is until visitors arrive. Men stand outside the door yelling, John! His legs stiff from sitting, his back cold and numb. He slowly stands up and walks toward the door. He squints and, and blinks to adjust his eyes to the light outside. A few familiar faces come into focus. It's his mentees, and it's verse 18. It says, the, the disciples of John reported, look at this, all these things to him. Now, here's what's going on. A little bit of context. John is sitting in a jail cell. Uh, I believe this cell would have been in, in one of Herod Antipas's uh, palaces, uh, specifically his Dead Sea Palace, which would have looked a lot like this. Uh, this palace, the remnants of this palace, is in modern-day Jordan today. And uh, recent excavations have, have uncovered a lot of its ruins. Uh, you can see the Dead Sea off in the distance. This is likely where John is sitting. And so John is in a cell in southern Israel. Jesus is doing ministry up in northern Israel. And John asks his disciples, can you go up north, check in on Jesus, see what's going on, report back to me. Well, these men go up. They see the ministry of Jesus Christ. They come back. They say, you know, John, we just came back from Nain. Jesus raised a boy from the dead. Before that, Jesus raised a centurion's servant, healed a centurion's servant. Uh, we also heard that he fed 5,000 people on a, on a mountainside. The religious leaders up in the north, they are ticked. John, we wish you could see it all. So much is happening up in the north. Yet with all of this news, John has an interesting and somewhat confusing response. With bony fingers wrapped around the cell bar, he motions to two of his disciples to come closer. He says, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, look at this, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Well, now that's a curious response, isn't it? Let me think about this. John, your cousin, your friend, He's exploding. The world has never seen the things Jesus is doing. History is culminating to this moment. Right now, history is being divided. This is incredible. And John, come on, man. You were the divine hype man. You came to prep everyone for this. John, you knew, even as a little kid, you knew Jesus was special. You baptized Jesus. You heard God audibly speak to Jesus. You yourself said that Jesus was the one who takes away the sin of the world. Why are you asking this question? You know the answer to this. And a lot of commentators debate and speculate, okay, why does John ask this? Personally, I think we're just seeing John's current mental state here. He's, he's struggling. Yeah, think about it. He's used to being outside, used to 
using his gift of speaking, sleeping under the stars. He's lived with this excitement for preparing the way for the, the Messiah, drawing crowds and building up the excitement. And he did it so well. John came, left everything on the field, yet here he sits, thinking this is not the end that I had in mind. He doesn't get to see what he hyped up. He's caged up. He might not even get out. Was it worth it? Is this really the life that I'm supposed to live? You ever have those thoughts? Those doubts? I do sometimes. You know, something doesn't go the way that I was like working toward. I step back, I'm like, what am I doing? Am I in the wrong business? Is this worth it? Should I be doing this? Come on, you've been there too. Maybe, maybe you put a career on hold to, to raise some, some kids. And after a morning of just complete insanity and messes and no appreciation, you kind of sit there, start wondering, this is not what I imagined. This sucks. Maybe I should have chose something else. Or you took a risk and you started a business. And after a really hard month, you know, you're running the numbers and you're going, ah, this is not what I thought. This is not worth the stress. I wish I wouldn't have done this. Or maybe you got married and you imagined, you know, like marriage bliss, at least something close to marriage bliss, but you're not living that because after the 10th time of being on a different planet than your spouse, or after the 10th frustrating conversation, you find yourself thinking, this is not what I thought. This is not what I imagined. Am I wasting my good years in this? I think this is John a little bit. He's sitting in prison. He's wondering, is this really it? This is what? My ministry was leading to me sitting here in this prison. I'm sure he thought that he'd at least enjoy some of the fruit of his labor. At least he'd get some sort of good seat. At least he'd get some sort of like respect and appreciation. At the very least, maybe he could see someone be healed or something. But here he sits in prison, away from everything he loves, far from what's going on up in northern Israel. See, here I get the question. And his disciples take that question and they take it to Jesus. Look at verse 20. It says, when the men had come to him, meaning Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? And that hour he healed many people of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits, and, and many who were blind, he bestowed sight. Oh my goodness, just like put yourself here, like to, to be here, to, to feel the excitement of what's going on. Like a thick crowd is growing. Family after family weeps seeing their loved one regain health, regain movement of, of a limb, regain their mental state, regain their sight. Moms are holding their kids tightly. Dads are lifting their kids up in the air as, as tears stream down their face. Just seeing one family would make our heart leap. But this is family after family after family after family, weeping as the crowd cheers. This is overwhelming. This is high emotions. This is like medicine for the soul. And this is what John is missing as he sits in a dark stone room thinking, did I just waste my good years? And Jesus pauses the process of whatever's going on for a moment. And he looks to John's disciples and he says in verse 22, he says, you go and tell John what you have just seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. And then Jesus says something very curious back. Look at verse 23, I'll pull it up here. Jesus says, and blessed 
is the one who is not offended by me. One of the most, one of the many things I should say, one of the many things that I admire about Jesus is Jesus has this special gift of saying a lot using very little words. And this is one of those times. So much is in these words and I don't want to miss it. So let's just stop here and let's unpack this for a second. Before Jesus came, every Jewish person had their view of who the Messiah was going to be. And so people, they would get together and they would speculate, what's the Messiah going to be like? You know, the coming Messiah, who, who's he going to be like? And some would say, you know, well, he's going to be like a, a warrior king like David. He's going to rebuild Israel, restore Israel back to the glory days of David. Some thought, no, he's going to be more like Moses. He's just going to be this amazing leader. Others thought, no, he's going to be like bold, like, like Elijah. Well, Jesus comes along and he breaks everyone's mold. He's not who anyone had anticipated. He doesn't act the way they thought he'd act. He doesn't say what they thought he'd say. He doesn't care about what they thought he would care about. This is why a lot of people were, and today are, offended by Jesus. He isn't who everybody wanted him to be. And that's offensive. And so Jesus is saying here, John, I know that I'm not necessarily everything you imagined. You spent your life preparing the way for me, and now you don't get to take part in what you prepared for. And this isn't what you wanted. But happy are those who keep trusting. Your work is worth it. Your pain was worth it. Keep your chin up. I know this is not what you imagined, but John, the blind see. The, the dead are raised. The deaf can hear. And, and this isn't part of the outline, but I, just, I wonder if Jesus might be saying the same thing to you. Maybe you walked in here tonight just a little bit distracted. Some sort of weight is on your shoulders because something is not turning out the way you imagined it would. Career is not what you dreamed of. Marriage isn't what you hoped for. Kids aren't what you thought. And I wonder if Jesus might be saying the same sort of thing to you in this text. Hey, I know it's not what you imagined, but happy are those who keep doing good, who aren't offended by what Jesus is calling you to. Don't, don't grow weary. It is worth it. Yes, there's brokenness all around us and families are torn and job stress and kid issues and health problems and financial struggles and anxiety and depression and, and confusion. But make no mistake, the day is coming. The brokenness will be fixed. Every tear will be wiped. You might feel like you're stuck in some sort of cell right now, but keep doing good. Happy are those who are not offended because of what Jesus called them to is different than what they thought it would be. It's beautiful words from Jesus. He continues on, verse 24. This is when John's messengers had gone. Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Now, here's where Jesus introduces us to his friend, and this is so good. He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Something Jesus would often do when he taught is, uh, as he was teaching, he would find something that he could see, point at it, and then just like use an illustration about it, which is just brilliant. Like he would do this with rocks, he would do this with birds flying overhead, he would do this with lilies that they would see uh, on the mountainside. Last week I was struck by this because I was driving from uh, northern Israel to southern Israel, and I was struck by just how many illustrations I saw just alongside the road that Jesus would use. You know, like I drove by a field of rocks, and I thought, man, Jesus stood there saying, the rocks will cry out. I drove by a lot of sheep, and Jesus referred to us as sheep, or drove uh, by a lot of mountains, and, and Jesus said, yeah, faith to move mountains. So Jesus was just so creative. This is what he'd do. He'd just point at something and use it as an illustration, and he's doing that right here. See, all around Galilee, if you're to go to northern Israel, uh, Galilee has, has reeds all around it. 
and reeds, they're not good for much, other than seeing which way the wind is blowing. And Jesus says in verse 24, he says, this, this is not my friend, John. Okay, well, what are you talking about, Jesus? Again, Jesus is saying a lot using little words. Just like reeds aren't good for much, other than telling us where the wind is blowing, so there are a lot of people who are simply reeds. They're just not good for much. They bend and they sway depending on whoever they're around. You know, I'm, I'm going to be this way with these people. I'm going to be different with these people. Oh, the wind is blowing over here. You know, so I'm going to lean this way. Oh, culture is telling me this. Nope, now culture is saying this now, so I'm going to lean over here. My spouse wants this, so I'm going to go over here. But my kids want that, so I'm going to go over here. Reeds are people pleasers. Reeds are people who never really think for themselves or stand up for something. They make fantastic politicians. Reeds. People-pleasing, yet frustrating people. And Jesus says here, I like my buddy John. We really click well because he's no read. And it gives us our first point. Characteristics that Jesus looks for in a friend, not driven by popular opinion. It's not driven by popular opinion. Jesus says, this is why I like John. Popular opinion doesn't matter to him. He's not driven by the wind. Yet, many of us are. Many of us are driven, we're affected, and we are heavily influenced by opinion. Whether it's an opinion of culture, opinion of a friend, opinion of a spouse, opinion of a parent, we can easily bend and sway based on who we want to appease in that moment. The problem is, for some of us, this is so deeply ingrained in us because this has been our operating system in life. Just walking throughout life, trying to appease everybody. So deeply ingrained, we can't see it in the mirror. So I have a little litmus test right now to see how much of a read you are. Do you want to take it? Of course not, but we're going to anyways. Symptoms of a read, and the, the, this is worth writing down. These are the things that aren't in your notes, but I would write these down underneath the points. Symptoms of a read, the first symptom is you struggle to say no. You struggle to say no. See, a read is blown where it is told. It doesn't have backbone to stand up against the wind. In the same way, the word no is hard to say for a person who is a reed, because reeds want to be, everybody wants to be liked, but reeds have this insatiable desire to be liked by everybody. This is the adult who can't set boundaries with their parent. They can't say no. This is the husband who is whipped by his wife. This is the boss who tries to be everybody's friend instead of leading everybody. This is the parent who can't discipline their child. This is the friend who gets walked all over by everybody else. And I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm just, this is, this is what Jesus is getting at. Can't say no. I want people to like me, but in reality, that actually frustrates everybody around them. So you struggle to say no. The second symptom is you don't want parts of your life to mix. So I don't want my church friends to meet my going out friends because I won't know how to act because I'm one way around them and I'm another way around them. If they meet each other, I don't know what to, it's kind of like, remember in middle school or high school when you're like hanging out with your friends and then, and then your parents are around and you're like, oh, it's like uncomfortable. I don't necessarily know how to act here because I'm one way around my parents and I'm another way around my friends. That's, that's a read. Uh, third symptom of a read is you avoid and downplay conflict. So to engage conflict is to go against some wind. Reeds don't have backbone to go against the wind. And so for a reed, if there's conflict, it feels like a tornado. I don't know which way to lean here. I don't know which way to blow here because there's conflict. I want both sides to like me. So what do I do? 
I'll downplay it, sweep it under the rug. I'll say what you, what you want to hear, and I'll say to you what you want to hear, and then hopefully everything will go away and people will still like me. Another symptom of a read is you value opinions as much as principles. Opinions as much as principles. So God's people, we, are called to live our lives based on principles. Regardless of what society is telling us, regardless of how we feel, we live by principles. Biblical principles, despite what pop culture and trends say. Reeds really struggle with this. I know God is telling me to go this way, but my goodness, the, the wind is really blowing me this way. And so instead of being guided by principles, reeds are more affected by opinions. Reads, often the nicest of people. But Jesus says, this is why I click well with John. He's no read. So how'd you do? In, in reality, we all have a little bit of a read in us. And Jesus, in fewer words, says, this is why I like John. This is why we click. He's the same guy with everyone. He stands up for what's right. He's not going to try to flatter you. What you see is what you get with John. And we all, we all like people like that. People like that are very refreshing. And Jesus continues on. He goes, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. So soft clothing means uh, fine clothing. Just like today, there were trends back then, fashion trends. Um, this specific group that, that Jesus would have been talking to probably was um, poor, more agrarian, especially in that area of, of Israel during that time. Um, but the wealthier class would often show their, their wealth with their clothing. They would wear very soft clothing and vibrant colors. And then like today, many people would overspend to get that clothing so that they could just kind of give off that vibe that they have more money than, than maybe they have. Jesus says here, I like John because he's not into that. The guy wears camel hair clothing. He's not driven by image. And it gives us point number two. Characteristics that Jesus looks for in a friend is not driven by image. Not driven by image. This is difficult in that <laughs> we struggle to admit that we're image driven, even though we all live in a world that is, is social media, selfie crazed, branded world everywhere we go. But for some reason, we all, all of us like to walk around like we're immune to everything, you know? You know, image driven people is everyone else. I'm the lone voice in the society, you know, laughing at all the pretentious people, shallow people around me. Like, okay. Well, let's take another test and see how you fare then. Symptoms of an image-driven person. You ready? Symptoms of an image-driven person. Number one, you evaluate yourself through the eyes of others. Image-driven people often think of themselves through the eyes of everybody else. Spend a lot of time thinking, okay, so how does so-and-so see me? How does um, my boss see me? How do, how, do, how do my in-laws see me? How do my parents see me? This is their operating system. Jesus liked John because John didn't care what the kings thought of him. That's why he's sitting in prison. And John didn't care what the crowds thought of him. That's why John was losing the crowds. John didn't care much about his vibe. John evaluated himself through the eyes of God and not through other people. And Jesus says, that's why I like John. Uh, second, second symptom is your day is determined by your appearance. Okay, not to be fair, it's like it's natural to feel good about yourself if you, know, you feel good about your appearance. However, there is a line like, good hair day? All right, I'm feeling good. It's a good mood. Treating others better, you know, snapping some selfies, lots of stories today. It's a good day. But bad hair day? Okay, well, now I'm edgy. Now I'm not snapping selfies. I'm snapping at people. Bad mood, bad day. 
image-driven people's moods tend to be tied to their external appearance. Uh, the third symptom is you gravitate toward image-driven people. Image-driven people flock to each other because they feel affirmed and accepted if they're around pretty people. So if you look at your friends ever and you think, my goodness, all they care about is their image. It should cause us to wonder if we found, pe- found company with people just like us. Also, if all of our friends look the same, same race, same socioeconomic, same age, same style, same vibe, it should also cause us to wonder, am I not branching out because I subconsciously want to be seen the way I see them? The fourth symptom of an image-driven person is you struggle with true vulnerability. So to be truly vulnerable, oh, this is just true about myself, right? To really be myself around you, you're going to have to see me in a way that I don't want to be seen. I don't want you to see parts of my life. Image-driven people can't ever go there and really open up about that. So if you're to sit in a small group with a lot of image-driven people, there's never really real discussion on sin or personal struggles. It's kind of just a waste of time. There might be some pseudo-vulnerability, but for the most part, it's just kind of competition and keeping up with each other. Image-driven people can't be real about the ugly sin that we all have. It's image-driven people. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, like, roll out of bed and wear a stained shirt tomorrow, comb your hair with a wrench, stop brushing your teeth. That's gross. We should all want to be presentable. We should care, you know, we should take care of ourselves. Yet we do live in a world where it's very easy to then be driven by all of that. And when you're driven by your image, it is cancer to your spirit. That's why Jesus loved John, because John, yeah, what you see is what you get with John. He's not wearing the finer clothing or camel, camel hair. He didn't play that brand game, that image game. John was just refreshing to be around. So how'd you do on these? It's hard, isn't it? We got another one coming up. Verse 26. Uh, verse 26 and verse 27, Jesus says John is a prophet. Uh, skip down to verse 28, actually. Verse 28, Jesus continues. He says, I tell you, this is interesting. Among those born of women, none is greater than John. Think about that statement. Jesus just said, John the Baptist, like the greatest person ever. Then he says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is, is greater than John the Baptist. Well, that kind of seems like a diss, isn't it? So Jesus is saying, John is the greatest, but there's something more important than following John, being in the kingdom of God. John may be the greatest human, goat, but there's something, well, someone greater. And John would actually agree with that. See, uh, not too long before this, John's disciples had came to him a bit frustrated because John, uh, John's crowds, as John was preaching to the crowds, his crowds were actually shrinking. Less and less people were showing up to hear John. And his disciples came to him and basically said, you know, it's because of the guy you baptized, Jesus, they're all going to him now. Uh, we're losing followers of that guy. And John had the perfect response. He said this in John 3.30. He said, well, he must increase and I must decrease. And I believe that this right here is why Jesus said, nobody's better than John. I mean, think about the specialness, the humility to say this. This broken world is all about building your platform, right? You know, get more followers, boost your popularity, grow your contacts, network as much as you can. And I'm not saying that all of that is wrong. 
John knew how to grow his platform. He could draw draw crowds. He knew how to grow his platform. He had a network of of royalty. He had no problem, though, giving it all up. And that's what Jesus is saying. And he gives us point number three. What is Jesus drawn to in a friend? Not driven by attention. And this right here is such a rare, rare, rare quality today. A quality that, come on, a lot of us, (laughs) we tease ourselves that we think we have. Because we love saying things like, you know, I, I just hate attention. You know, I, I don't want all the attention. I don't need the spotlight. But, but the reality is it's human nature. We like attention. In fact, we even judge success based on attention. For example, social media realm. We judge a, a post based on the interaction that it got. How much attention did it get? How many likes did it get? How many comments did it get? And the more attention, the more success. But even outside of social media realm, we'll judge, we'll judge our get-togethers based on the attention that I got. Driving away from a family reunion or, or hanging out with friends. Okay, did, did people take an interest in me just now? Did I just impress them? Did I make them laugh? We'll judge our work based on it. Did, I, did, I, uh, did my work get attention from the higher ups? You know, was I listened to in that meeting? Did I get credit for that project? We're driven by attention. But if you look at John the Baptist, Jesus says, I like John because he doesn't play that game. Is that you? Well, let's see. Let's take another Litmus test. First symptom of a, an attention-driven person is you exaggerate a lot. You exaggerate a lot. Attention-driven people like to exaggerate. So, you know, if their telling of the story is more embellished, well, it gets more of a reaction, more sympathy or more attention. Exaggeration is often a tool used to get a louder voice. It's a tool used by the attention-driven. Uh, number two, the second symptom is you're dramatic. No not any of us. If you ever find yourself a lot saying, I hate drama, chances are you love drama. (laughs) You're just trying to convince yourself you hate it because something's always an emergency. Little things are made into big things. You know, I I wear my heart on my Facebook sleeve because I get attention for it. I got three daughters. I found myself saying this quite a bit. We're not going to be dramatic, all right? It's not a big deal. You are making it a big deal, but it is not a big deal. Because I don't want them to be drama queens. Because dramatic, attention-seeking people are miserable people. They're hard to be around. The third symptom of an attention-seeking person is uh, your, your selfish conversationalist. They don't ask many questions. Uh, they want to talk about themselves. They want to talk about what they like, what they've done, and what they're going to do. See, a good conversation is... Uh, it has good back and forth, right? It's almost like a tennis match. It's back and forth, back and forth. There's questions on both sides. It's, it's give and take, talking and listening. That's a good conversation. Selfish conversationalists will steer the topic and keep the topic about them and what they want to discuss, rarely ever asking a question. Another thing that selfish conversationalists will do sometimes is if you're like in a group of people and you're talking about a subject and if there's like a split second of a pause they're going to try to steer the conversation back to what they want to talk about it's a selfish conversationalist fourth symptom of an attention-driven person is you fish for compliments so attention-seeking people live off the praise of others and when they don't get enough of it they starve and so they have to go fish uh, fishing might look like um, talking bad about themselves so that people will you know, say something nice. It's like, oh, I'm so fat. No, you're so skinny. I wish I had your body. Really? It's fishing. 
Fishing might look like promiscuous activity, whether physical or, um, or dress. Uh, fishing might look like, <laughs> like, like those mysterious Facebook posts. You ever see these? You know, or somebody posts like, something terrible just happened, but I don't want to talk about it. Like, Why'd you post it then? Because <laughs> they're fishing. Exaggerate a lot, dramatic, selfish conversation. How, how, how are you doing on these tests? Yeah, I don't want to talk about it either. See, reality is, is uh, Jesus did have a point when he said, nobody's better than John. John's further along than, than us. He's, he's further ahead than us when it comes to this stuff. We, we all have some work when it, when it comes to this. But to wrap it all up, let me just say this. This really, 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 really matters a lot, especially right now. As I said, I just got back from, uh, from, a, from a trip, and um, this isn't a shot at Israel. I, I love Israel. I, I could like, move there one day. Northern Israel especially. It's beautiful. The old city of Jerusalem, though, this last time I went, it was just, I don't want to say it was a letdown, but it kind of was. Um, the old city of Jerusalem, when you go to Jerusalem, you go into the old city, it's just full of, it's a, a, like a bizarre market. Vendors everywhere trying to just work tourists over. And, uh, and a good percentage, like most of the stuff, by far, most of the stuff that they're selling are cheap fakes from China. And I know this because I have a friend who owns one of the stores in old Jerusalem, and he said, yeah, I order it all from China. So as you walk these streets, it's, it's like you're walking into the sea of fakes. I hate it. Like cheap, gaudy, chintzy fakes everywhere you look. Well, this last time we were, we were walking, I, I, by chance, I stumbled into this little hole-in-the-wall store. I was looking for something for my daughters, and, and, um, and I noticed this store because there wasn't anything shiny on the shelves. I walk in, it kind of smelled old. Everything was rusted. Uh, nothing was like fully put together. Everything was chipped or cracked. And the guy in the corner was just reading a, a magazine. And I, I said to him, I was like, where am I? Like, I like this place. This place feels real. And uh, old man got up and, and he said, because it is. Like, I have certificates of authenticity for everything in here. Nothing in here is less than 100 years old. These are legitimate pieces everywhere you look. I didn't want to go back outside into the gaudy fakes. Like this little corner of Jerusalem was just like, it was refreshing. This is how the church is supposed to feel. Because we live in a sea of fakes. Photoshopped everything. Filtered everything. Bogus news stories everywhere. We don't even know what's real anymore. It's a time such as this for God's people to showcase something that is so foreign to society. Authenticity. Broken, rusty, but real people. And there's an attraction to that because we crave that. To be a people who aren't driven by the wind, wherever the wind is blowing, we live by principles, not opinions, principles. Well, that's weird, but that's refreshing. To be with people who aren't consumed and obsessed with their image and, and their look, but understand that they are made in the image of God. Oh, that's odd. But that's beautiful. And to have a community like that, oh, that's deep. And to be a people who aren't fueled by attention, but fueled by their love for other people, that's foreign. But so wanted in our society. See, the church... God's people, it's a time such as this that we become an oasis of real, 
in the sea of fakes. Then now you're the one in the office, or you're the one in the family, or you're the one online, or you're the one with your friends who's just fundamentally different. People look at you and they go, there's just there's something different about them. They kind of like it. They're real. They're not chasing the wind or an image or a group or attention. They're not trying to be someone they're not. That, that's refreshing. I want to be around that. This is why God, over and over and over and over in Scripture, calls his people peculiar. You are my peculiar people. You are my peculiar treasure. You are, you are peculiar. You're going to be peculiar because you're different from the rest. You are going to be real, unlike everybody else. And our realness is simply a testament to the real God that I live for. There's something different about that person. They're real. Ah, because they serve a real God. And after all, we all realize it's not about us anyways. We can decrease. It's all about him increasing. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you give it a share? It goes a long way. Also, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't yet. Hey, God has something for you today. Go after it. Blessings. Blessings.